We'll be in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, through chapter 9, verse 17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For every, every beast, I will require it and from every man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. There's a great scene in that classic Christmas movie, The Polar Express. It's the movie about the little boy who is on Christmas Eve trying to fall asleep and this train comes in front of his house and he goes out and understands that this train is going to the North Pole. So he gets on and he gets a ticket and the ticket gets punched and they go off and they collect a few other little children who get tickets as well. And then on the journey, one of the little girl's tickets that doesn't get punched accidentally flies out of the train and it's blowing in the wind and it creates this suspense in the movie. You're wondering, is this, is this girl's ticket going to come back? Are they going to be able to get it because she won't be able to get to the North Pole without the ticket? And and the ticket falls on the ground, it gets trampled by a pack of wolves, it pops back up in the air and, and it floats away and then a bird gets it and flies to its nest and gives it to its little young and the little baby bird eats it and then spits it out and then it rolls down the hill and collects a snowball around it and then it breaks up and then finally, the ticket 
blows in front of this tunnel, and then here comes the train, and it ends up right back in the train. What's, what's really fascinating about that scene is you're on, you're, kinda, you're on edge because this ticket is so precious, and it's so valuable to this little girl, and you're wondering, is it going to get destroyed? Is it going to get lost? And really, that's a picture of what we've seen so far in Genesis with life, this precious life, these precious lives that God has created. And then sin enters the world and threatens to destroy and mar and distort life. And and you wonder, is life going to survive? Is it going to be preserved? And then you have the flood. And out of the flood, only a few lives are saved. And you go, wow, are these lives going to make it? Because sin keeps destroying and distorting and marring things. Raises the question, how does God preserve life? in the midst of such sin and such darkness and such brokenness. We're going to see that God preserves life by his sacrifice, by his protection, and by his patience. So first, God's sacrifice. As soon as Noah exits the ark, he builds an altar. Builds an altar, and he offers up an animal and makes a burnt offering. It's the first time in the scriptures that we see an offering. It's the first time we see an altar, and yet it's a prelude to what would happen on a regular basis in the tabernacle, which was the place where God met with his people. We read in Leviticus 1 what happened in the, in the front of the tabernacle, the entrance. There was an altar of burnt offering, and you would come to the front of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle with an animal from your herd, and you would put your hand on the animal's head, signifying the transfer of your sin to this animal, and then it would be killed. And the priests would take the blood and they would throw it against the sides of the altar. Now, what was happening here? What was the purpose? Leviticus 1, verse 3 says, so that, or the purpose, that he, the person bringing the offering, may be accepted before the Lord. And then verse 4, to make atonement for him. That word atonement means to cover. It's beautifully pictured in the Ark of the Covenant, which sat in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. This was the the place where God's presence dwelled. And this Ark of the Covenant, it was a box. It had a lid on it, and the lid was called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And on top of the lid were two cherubim or angels. And the priest would take blood from the animal that was sacrificed on the altar of burnt offering and then take that blood and sprinkle it on the atonement cover. And what was pictured was beautiful. As God looked down on the Ark of the Covenant and he looked inside the Ark of the Covenant, which had the broken Ten Commandments, that was the sin of God's people. As he looked down on the sin of his people, he would see the blood instead on the lid, that the blood of the sacrifice absorbed God's wrath so that his sinful people were covered. And that's exactly what we see happening here with Noah. As he gives a burnt offering at the altar, he makes the offering, and then we see what God says. The Lord said, I will never again curse the ground because of man, neither Will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done? Noah makes the offering, and it serves as an atonement or a covering. 
Life is preserved because of this sacrifice. The blood of the animal, the blood of the sacrifice would absorb God's wrath and, and turn it away from the person, Noah and his family. Now, there's two really noteworthy, noteworthy descriptions of God's response to Noah's offering. Two descriptions of his response to Noah's offering. In verse 21, we see the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and then we see the Lord said in his heart. So these sacrifices that Noah brought were pleasing to God, and they moved his heart. Now, first, they were, they were pleasing to God. What, what was pleasing about these sacrifices? Did God take pleasure in the animals dying? Did he take pleasure in just being hungry and satisfying his appetite? No, God, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. And that means that God involves himself in the pain of humanity that's due because of sin. He graciously humbles himself to be involved in humanity and therefore is pained by human sin and his justice is committed to removing that sin, removing what is destroying his world, what, what, is, what is paining his people. He's committed to justice. If you ever watched a, a courtroom scene in a, in a movie, you get to the end of the movie, it's been a, you know, a long trial and it's getting to that point where the judge is about to hand down the verdict. And you have the family sitting there who have lost a loved one from the hands of the violent person that's on trial that committed the murder. And, and as the judge is beginning to hand down the verdict, the, the, the family is sitting on pins and needles, right? They're, they're, they're longing for justice and they're hoping that justice will be served as the judge hands down the verdict. And, and when the judge does hand down the verdict, and says that this person is guilty, oftentimes there's an eruption of joy from the family that lost a loved one. Albeit with tears, but there's joy. Why? We're made in the image of God. And so when justice is served, there's joy in that. God is a God of justice. What was pleasing about the sacrifice was that it, it symbolized, signified justice being served. That the sin was put on this animal, that the sin was removed, that God's justice was being served. Now it begs the question, did the sacrifice of an animal really take away sin? And the answer is no. Hebrews 10 makes that clear. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Noah's burnt offering and all the offerings in the Old Testament were pointing to the one offering that would take away sin. And that was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Listen to how the sacrifice of Christ is described in Ephesians 5.2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering, pleasing aroma, and sacrifice to God. Christ's death, his sacrifice, was pleasing to God. Why? Because it satisfied God's justice. Sin was taken away, but it also satisfied his love. He did it in a way where he didn't lose you and me. 
And so we see this first response to Noah's offering. This offering was a pleasing aroma to God. But second, we see that this offering moved God's heart. The Lord said in his heart. Now, now what, what moved God's heart? Well, look at verse 21. God said, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. There's a, there's a contrast and a highlight here. God was moved by this offering, not because of Noah's righteous behavior or his family's righteous behavior. In fact, just the opposite. The intention of Noah's heart and his children and his family were evil all the time. No, God delayed judgment. God withheld judgment from Noah, committed not to destroy Noah and his family and his future offspring because of the sacrifice, not because of Noah's behavior. Let me remind you in this story that, that you aren't Noah. You're not Noah. You're, you're one of his family members. You're one of his family members. They watched Noah build, build the, uh, the altar. They watched Noah make the sacrifice. They were blessed by an offering that they didn't bring. And in the same way, you and I are blessed by an offering that we don't bring to the table. It's an offering that God brought, the offering of his son, Jesus Christ. So what should be your response to this? Quit trying to polish up your sin. Quit trying to bring a sanitized version of your sin before God that you think is gonna move his heart. God is pleased with you in Christ. God is pleased with you because of the sacrifice of Christ. So don't waste your time defending yourself, justifying your sin, trying to minimize it, confess it, and spend your time praising God for the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Spend your time praising God. The author of Hebrews spends the entire book describing how amazing and how perfect the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is. He gets to the end of the book after that long argument of how perfect the sacrifice is, and he says this in Hebrews 13, 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. The only sacrifice that is left for you to give is a sacrifice of praise. And that means that for every one look at your sin, you should give 10 looks to Jesus Christ. For every moment of introspection, you should have 10 moments of praise for what God has done through Jesus. God preserves life through his sacrifice. But second, we see that God preserves the gift of life in the midst of sin, the midst of darkness and brokenness through his protection. The stark reality that we arrive at at the beginning of chapter nine is that the condition of humanity has not changed. After the flood, humanity is still sinful. 
The condition of Noah's heart, the condition of his family hasn't changed. We see this. In, in verse 1, we see God give a command to Noah that's very similar to the command he gives to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The only difference now is that sin has darkened the scene. So in verse 2, it says man will still have dominion over the creation, over the animals, but now it will be one based on fear. Verse 3, all animals are now given to man for food. And then verses 5 and 6 describe this violence that is going to continue on earth. If God's first action to preserve life after the flood was a sacrifice that would remove his wrath and keep him from destroying his people, then his second action after the flood to preserve life is to put ordinances and laws in place to keep the people from destroying each other. And, and the reason he does this is because of how sacred life is in God's eyes. That life is sacred. That's why he, he's protecting life and he puts these laws in place. Look at the sacredness of life in verses four to seven. In verse four, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood, verse five, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. All this talk about blood. Why? Why is it so important? Because life is in the blood. Leviticus 17 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. God says, I've given you the animals to sacrifice for atonement. And then in verse 3 in chapter 9, I've given you the animals for food, both of those preserving life. So it begs the question, what's he prohibiting in verse 4? In verse 4, when he says, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood, He's talking about abuse here. He's talking about savagery. He's talking about just taking life lightly and abusing. Why is life so sacred to God? Verse six, for God made man in his own image. Every life bears the image of God. Every life bears the image of God. And that means every life though marred by sin, is sacred and should be treated as such. So life is sacred. That's, that's why God protects it. And look how he protects. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. God institutes capital punishment to preserve life in the face of human depravity. You know, before the flood, capital punishment wasn't in place, and so it led to blood feuds among families, Genesis 4. It led to vengeance, and so God institutes this to preserve life. And what we learn here is that God institutes laws of the land and people to administer those laws and people to make righteous use of those laws to protect life, to protect life. Let me give you a couple examples. I have a friend who works for the government a branch of the government here in Jacksonville. And he and his team raid and break down sex trafficking rings in the city of Jacksonville. And so he will go into these homes or places where they find out that there's a ring 
and he will arrest and convict the traffickers and rescue these little girls, these women, out of the rings. There are Christian nonprofits in Jacksonville that partner with the city, that when this happens and these little girls and these women are rescued, they're taken into safe houses where they can heal, where they can be taught and reminded of their dignity as a child of God, that they're image bearers. That's God protecting life through the government, through the city, through nonprofits. I'll give you another example. Adoption. God protects life through adoption and through the laws that allow for adoption. We partner with an organization called First Coast Women's Services here in North Florida. And they counsel women who have unplanned pregnancies. They encourage them towards adoption. This child would have a life that they couldn't have. And then you have adoption agencies that take these children and legally place them in families where they'll be nurtured and cared for, where their life will be preserved. You have the state foster system that takes children who are in unhealthy environments, children that are in in danger, and removes them from that danger and places them in the custody of loving families that will care for them and nurture them and bring healing to them. Again, you have agencies and nonprofits and the city and government working to protect life. The list goes on of those who administer the laws and make righteous use of the laws of the land to protect life. Firefighters, paramedics, doctors, nurses. You say, why is this so important? Well, this this is called, the phrase that's used is called common grace. That just means that all, all truth is God's truth. All protection is God's protection whether it comes through an unbeliever or a believer. Why is this important? Well, it keeps you from hibernating into a Christian subculture and failing to see the grand scope of God's work in his world to preserve life. How does God preserve the gift of life in the midst of sin and darkness and brokenness? Through his sacrifice, through his protection, and finally, through his patience. In verses 8 to 17, God establishes his covenant with Noah, his descendants, and the entire world. He establishes this covenant, and he reiterates his commitment not to destroy. In verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Then God gives the sign, the sign of this covenant, in verse 13. He says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, clearly, this is describing a rainbow in the clouds. But the word in Hebrew means bow. It means a warrior's bow, like a bow and arrow. God's bow during the flood had been pointed at the earth in judgment, righteous judgment, 
It was deserved by humanity. But what he says here in this covenant that he makes is that he sets his bow in the clouds. He sets it in the clouds so it's no longer pointed at the earth. What's this mean? Well, it means that God's judgment would be delayed. That God would delay his judgment while sin continued to ravage his world. That he exercised patience towards his people. The, the word in the scriptures that's used to describe this patience of God is the word forbearance. And what does forbearance mean? It's the action of refraining from exercising a legal right like enforcing the payment of a debt. Romans 3.25 describes it this way. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation, it's the same word that's uh, translated atonement cover or mercy seat in Hebrews 9 describing the Ark of the Covenant. Right? This propitiation that removes God's wrath. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God hung up his bow in the clouds. He hung up his bow. He delayed his judgment. The next time that he would pick up his bow, it wasn't aimed at earth. It was aimed at heaven, at his son, Jesus Christ who would bear judgment on the cross for humanity. Student loans actually provide a, a good example of forbearance. If you have student loans, maybe you've experienced this. But if you have a student loan and you come upon financial stress and you're unable to make the monthly payment, you can choose to enter into a period of what's called forbearance when you don't have to make the monthly payment. The problem is, is when you go into forbearance, the interest accrues and the interest capitalizes so that when you come out of forbearance, your payment is much higher. From the time of Noah to the time of Christ, during this season of God's forbearance, the debt of sin accrued interest. So by the time that we come out of forbearance and God picks his bow back up and aims it at his son on the cross, the payment was astronomical. And yet Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. When you see a rainbow in the clouds, it's not just something beautiful in creation, though it is that. God is speaking through the rainbow because the rainbow is a sign of his covenant. Now, what exactly is God speaking to you through the rainbow? Well, it depends. If you're in Christ, it speaks reassurance that God's warrior bow, his battle bow, is not aimed at you, that it was aimed at his son, and his son, Jesus, took judgment for you. If you're not in Christ, the rainbow is a sign and a picture of God's patience towards you. That as the debt of your sin accrues daily and, and the payment goes way beyond what you could ever pay or afford, that God is patient towards you. 
calling you to turn to his son Jesus and to receive Christ's payment on your behalf. God's patience is not a license to live the life you want. His patience is designed. When you see that rainbow, his patience, his grace, his love is designed to turn you to Jesus. Where you receive a new life, free from the debt of sin. Matt Woodley describes the journey that his friend Andy and his wife took to a South American country to adopt a little girl. And when Andy got there, the country was in a time of corruption, violence, political chaos. And from the moment he arrived on the scene, they kept upping the cost of this adoption. And it got so corrupt that Andy threatened them and threatened to talk to the U.S. consulate if they kept doing it. And it was at that time that a mysterious figure showed up. And this mysterious figure warned Andy of vague but dreadful consequences. But it wouldn't deter him. He refused to leave without his daughter. And I love how Woodley describes what happened. He says the odd thing was that Andy had never even met this girl. She was small. She was helpless. She hadn't won any awards or aced any tests. He didn't know that one day her smile would light up their living room or that she'd love their cats and dogs, or that she'd play Mozart pieces on the family piano. For all practical purposes, she was an orphan condemned to a life of grinding poverty in this country. But for some crazy reason, Andy stayed there, negotiating with corrupt officials, spending oodles of money, squandering time, and even risking his life to find and win this little girl. Through his patience, through his protection, through God's sacrifice, costly sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, all born out of love. He has won you. And he has given you the gift of a life you could never earn or never find on your own. Let's pray. Father, your sacrifice, your costly sacrifice of your son is amazing. Your patience with us is unfathomable. Your protection is strong. And all of this, to preserve life, the sacredness of it, and to give us a life we could never find 
a life we could never earn. Father, would our response to this be unending praise? That we would spend more time praising you for what you've done than trying to polish up our sin. And Father, I pray for those who have never trusted your son Jesus, that as they see your patience, as they maybe even look and see a rainbow, that you would speak powerfully and that your patience would draw them to turn to your son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we continue to worship, would we sing as those who have been redeemed, as those who have been rescued and given new life. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.